This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your host for today is Paul Sokolis with special guest, air conditioning expert, and president of Vintage Air, Rick Love. Here we go. Welcome to another edition of the On All Cylinders Podcast. I am your host for today, Paul Sokolis, and joining me is Rick Love. Rick is the president of Vintage Air, which means he knows a lot about automotive air conditioning systems. And as you imagine, he's a pretty popular guy right about now. Hey, Rick, thanks for taking some time out of your day to talk with us. Thanks, Paul. We're happy to be here. So, Rick, you've been with Vintage Air a pretty long time, haven't you? Full time since 1998. So that's quite a while. And um, I was actually a a customer of Vintage Air before that. I had a little shop where I did uh, AC installs and wiring and then um, actually started working with Vintage Air doing installations. And I actually uh, started doing some shows with them after that and, and working with some of them on some R&D projects and everything else. So I've been, I've known Jack, our founder and CEO, I've known him since 1982, I guess. And probably in the late 80s, I started doing more with him and then finally came to work for him full time since 98. So yeah, I've been, been, been involved with him for quite a while. So in addition to like the business acumen, you've got that technical background too. Uh, but more importantly, you're a car guy, right? Well, I've got a, a 39 Ford Coupe that I uh, initially built in, nine, in 1983. So I've had it 83, 84, the winter 83, 84. So I've had it since then. Got almost 200,000 miles on it for a while. It was the only car I owned. I drove it every day. Uh, just about two years ago, I finally had to do a little rebuild on it after the motor finally gave up. And some of the work that I did back in the early 80s when I was 21, 22 years old and stuff was a little a little less than I'd like to think I can do now. So we basically did a rebuild, but I, I like the look of the car. It, it's still, we rebuilt it and repainted it. It looks just like it did when I first finished it. So I'm, I, I have that. I've got a, a 72 Camaro, a uh, little pro touring type car, you know, pro touring light, I'd like to call it. I mean, it's still a, a small block, six speed car. Uh, I've got a little 32 Ford coupe and then I've got an old, uh, El Camino, a 66 El Camino I've had for a long time. It's kind of a my wife's parts chaser for landscaping equipment and things like that. And then I just recently added an 87 Monte Carlo Aero Coupe, and that's that's my daily driver now. I had one for years back in the early 90s, put almost 300,000 miles on that and sold it. And I just kind of had nostalgia hit me pretty hard for it. So I, I finally found another one and that's my daily driver now. Oh yeah. The Aero Coupe. That's the one with that revamped um, back window, the back glass. Yeah. The big back window, the NASCAR, the NASCAR, the one they had to build to make it legal for NASCAR. <laughs> we got to stop it right there. Otherwise they're going to be talking about awesome eighties muscle cars and not say a lick about air conditioning, which if you're playing along at home was kind of the whole point of this episode. So, Rick, you ready to talk some AC? Sure. All right. So let's lay out a hypothetical. I hop in my old car. Let's call it a 1970 Chevelle. It's a hot day. I jump in the front seat, turn the engine on, turn the fan on high, crank the knob all the way into the blue, and I can hear my compressor working and I can hear the fan blowing, but it's not blowing cold air. What are some things I can look out for to kind of get to the bottom of this problem? Well, if you're using, and, and first off, you're exactly right. When you talk about a 70 Chevelle, that's a 51 year old car right now. You know, and I remember the first hot rod I built was a, a 40 Chevy Coupe back when I was a, in high school. And that car was, you know, in 1979, that car wasn't, wasn't even 50 years old yet, you know, and we're talking about a 70 Chevelle. So, I mean, it's a 50 year old car now. And so it is an old car. And if you're still trying to make the original factory air work on those cars, the biggest problem with that is, is number one, it's 50 year old technology. 
you, so you're dealing with some of that with the 50 year old technology. And then you're still, you now you're dealing with a refrigerant, with the R12 refrigerant, that's extremely difficult to obtain now, unless you have a license. And even if you do have a license, it's pretty expensive to get R12. And then you got to find somebody that can work on it because if it's not blowing cold, the first thing is it's probably either out of refrigerant or low on refrigerant or doesn't have the, the proper amount of refrigerant. That's generally the first thing that's, that's the root cause of it. All right. So let me ask you this then. Um, I, like many of my colleagues, spend an alarming amount of time in the automobile classified ads um, online. And it seems like every old car, the the ad says, oh, yeah, the, the AC works great. It just needs a recharge. <laughs> is that really true? I mean, like, is a simple AC recharge going to fix a vast majority of the air conditioning problems out there? My answer to that is always on that is if it was that simple, why would you not get it charged up so that you have a functioning AC system when you're selling a car? You know, if it, if, and you know, I've looked at plenty of cars the same way, the belts cut on the compressor or something. And all you need to do is put a belt on it and charge it up and man, you'll be ready to go. And I'll grab hold of the clutch and find out that the clutch is seized up or the compressor is seized up, you know, and that's the reason they cut the belt. And now you've got a system that you have no idea what's wrong with it. If, if the hoses have been cut or something like that, you've got, you know, you've got debris in there, you've got all kinds of, of issues that come up. But my experience through the years has been, if it was just as simple as charging the system up, the guy would have charged the system up. The car is going to be worth more money with a working AC system for sure. Yeah, that just makes sense. Um, but let's go a step further. Say I, I buy the car anyway, or I already have a car and um, I know the AC system needs an overhaul. It needs some work. Um, are these replacement parts still available? I mean, is it possible to, to bring this original system back up to snuff? A lot of those parts are still available. At, at Vintage Air, that's not something we dabble in. Um, we don't do anything with replacement parts for the original systems. There are companies out there that do that, that have some of those parts available or replacement parts. Again, my experience through the years, even dating back to when I had my shop on it and everything, is... My, my take on that is if you're building a concourse restoration and you want that car to be like it was from the factory, you know, the way it looked, the way it was, all of that, trying to get that factory air working is something that you're probably worth doing. But if you're, if you're building a resto mod, if you're building a car that you're going to be driving all the time, in most cases, you're going to be better off to replace the entire AC system. And obviously, that's the type of, of systems that we manufacture here. They're, they're replacement systems. For a 70 Chevelle, I mean, we have a bolt-in system that's electronically controlled, heat cool defrost. We include a new control panel that mimics the look of the factory one. It's an electronic control panel, LED backlit, variable speed blower rather than a three-speed blower. You get the variable temperature blend and all of that. And again, it's set up to work with 134A refrigerant. So you're, you're set up to work with the modern commercially available refrigerant. And it's, it's a more technologically advanced system to begin with. And it performs better than the original OEM system did. And as a bonus, uh, the evaporator kit for that system is all basically on the inside of the car. So you lose that big, huge suitcase that's on the front of the firewall and you gain some engine clearance and clean up the firewall and all of that. So you have a lot of advantages to doing it. But man, when I had my shop, I, I tried to resuscitate some of those systems and it seemed like you ended up playing whack-a-mole. You, you'd put a compressor on it, put a dryer on it, and man, it would work for a month. And then the next week link in the system would go because you had you know problems with the oil, have corrosion over the years, or if it had been opened or something like that. And 
before you know it, you've spent a whole lot of money and you still don't have a system that's operating satisfactorily. And, and as a, as a business guy at the point, boy, I learned real quick, once you do one thing, you own the system. You know, if I put a compressor and a dryer on it, man, no matter what quit working on that system, it was my fault and I owned it because I had worked on it. And that's when I, again, that's when I started working so much with Vintage Air about, you know, I can put everything in new. I know how that system's going to operate and I can stand behind it. And so that was just kind of my personal experience at that point. Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime someone's replaced a, like a master cylinder on a brake system without uh, addressing the calipers and the drums, I mean, one by one, you're going to start popping old wheel cylinders left and right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, now, you've alluded to like the types of refrigerants already in this interview. Um, I think you mentioned R12 and R134A. Could you discuss that in a little bit more detail? I know there's a lot of confusion about like compatibility and which one's newer, which one's better, why do they change? Can you shed some light on that? It, you know, they are different refrigerants and they have different chemical properties. Uh, 134A became federally mandated back in the mid 90s, 94, 95 is when the OEMs were required to switch over to it. And anybody that had a vehicle back in the mid 90s probably dealt with some of the issues that the OEMs had when they converted over to 134A. And a lot of those initial systems didn't work that well because they took systems that were designed around the chemical properties of R12 and they used a new refrigerant in there. And it didn't, it, you know, you've all heard the rumors, well, our, our 134A doesn't get as cold as R12. R12 was always colder, you know, and I've heard those a hundred times. Well, if you've got a late model car now, Unless it's a you know a Chrysler that's that's changed over to the even newer refrigerant, the YF twelve thirty four, you're going to have most late model vehicles have one thirty four A, and that that AC is ice cold. And it came down to the OEMs learning that you had to use the proper components geared around one thirty four A, the properties of that refrigerant. One thirty four A absorbs heat better than R twelve, and it carries heat better than R twelve. But those two properties make it a little more resistant to giving up that heat. You know, and you dissipate the heat in the condenser. So you had to either get a larger condenser or a more efficient condenser to help that refrigerant dissipate the heat. So again, they they change the components within the system to make it work properly with 134A. I've never seen a 134A conversion short of replacing quite a few of the components within the system that functioned as far as temperature-wise. It's it's hard to make a conversion work as efficiently as the system did with the refrigerant it was designed for. I see. So R134A kind of just gets a bad rap there. Um, all right. So we've talked a bit about uh, some air conditioning basics. Let's get into some specifics, um, specifically vintage air. A lot of folks out there listening have weekend cruisers or project cars that uh, never even had air conditioning to begin with. Um, and from what I understand, vintage air makes it possible to retrofit a complete air conditioning system into a vehicle that never even had that option from the factory. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We make, you know, right now, just in our in our SureFit line, which is what we call the systems that we have that are designed specifically for a certain vehicle, we have over 70 different, different applications right now that are bolt-in systems. Again, you brought up a 70 Chevelle. That's a perfect example. We have a kit for a factory AC vehicle or a non-factory AC vehicle. If you have a factory AC, our system hooks up to the original vents. So you can maintain the look of that factory air system. If you've got a non-AC car, depending on the model of the car, 
We either give you new louvers that you can cut into your dash to kind of mimic the look of the original factory air systems, or in some cases, we'll go with an under dash type louver. And in many cases, the customer has a choice of which way he'd rather go. You know, if you want to maintain the originality of your car, keep it a bolt-in type thing, you know, sometimes the under dash louvers will work. And But if you want more of a built-in look, we have components available for that. But yeah, we have, in, in probably in more cases than not, the systems we have are sold for vehicles that were not originally equipped with factory air. So that means folks can put an air conditioning system in a really old car. Does that include like the pre-war stuff? Yeah. My 32 Ford five window, I've got AC in that, you know, I mean, so, I mean, basically vintage air, when we first started, the the vast majority of our business was pre-48 was the early hot rods and everything. So, I mean, the, with them, we we have what we call a builder series, which is components that are a little more universal because when you're building a hot rod, there's a lot more differences. You know, some guys use a Ford motor, some guys use a Chevrolet motor, you know, you may use a different grill shell, you may use a different dash in the car. So we have a lot more at, at the you know, when I say universal, you know, a universal kind of sometimes has a bad name associated with it, you know, like those old flex pipes that were called universal <laughs> pipes, you know. So, but we have a lot of components available that can be adapted to fit the theme that you're working with with that car. So, I mean, yeah, you can go back into the 20s and 30s. I mean, that's that's still a big part of our business, although the the what I refer to the later model, later models, you know, the post post 48 stuff has become more and more uh, a part every year. Okay, this might be a question that um, a lot of the performance-minded folks are going to be asking. Is there much power loss when you attach a compressor like this to an engine? And I'm thinking about the folks that have like the original engines, V8s that were only making 180 horsepower, you know, the low point in the 70s and stuff like that. Is there a noticeable power loss when you add a compressor like this? In in most cases, we use several different models of a sand and axial compressor. And um, they, you know, a lot of those 60s, 70s cars use that old York Tecumseh compressor, you know, look like a lawnmower engine because that's basically what it was, you know. And those compressors moved a lot of refrigerant, but they took a lot of horsepower, just like you say. And they made a lot of noise. They were big. They were heavy. They were, you know, the modern day axial compressors you know, they're a four to six horsepower is all it takes to run those at full capacity. So you're really not, you're not taking a lot of power away from an engine, especially when, when you pointed out that, you know, the basic horsepower of any of these cars anymore is, is increased over. I mean, you know, that old Monte Carlo I'm driving now every day, I mean, it's 180 horsepower motor, you know, back there in the eighties. So, and even, you know, six, eight horsepower, you know, four to six horsepower out of that, you're not even going to notice that. Now, I recall a story from the early uh, 70s Corvette, specifically the LT1. Um, Chevy engineers had, had a bear of a time getting air conditioning on the LT1 because the engine itself would rev so high, the AC compressor belt would spin off the pulley. Um, for folks with performance motors that like to live up in those higher RPM ranges, are they going to face similar problems or are those high revving engines able to be retrofitted successfully with a, an AC compressor? Yeah, if, you, if you're going to be running a high RPM like that, in, in our most of our systems, uh, we have the ability to have a, a full throttle cutout on that. So if you're going to be spinning that engine, you've got to be concerned with compressor RPM. You know, we've got, again, we talked to several different sand and models. Some of them will, will handle up to 9,000 RPM compressor RPM for short periods of time. And but, you know, if you're going to be revving a motor that high, in most cases, you want to cut the compressor off because you're either trying to get your maximum horsepower output out of it that time or anything. So we have a full throttle cutout 
available in a lot of cases for something like that if you're going to be living up in that high RPM range. But if you're going to be running six, 7,000 RPM, that's not a problem, especially okay. again with that axial design. Now, if you were running that old York Tecumseh style, yeah, I'd be real concerned about that. All right. So say someone does want to retrofit an air conditioning system in their engine bay. Are there any mounting considerations to, to think about? You know, where does the compressor need to go? Should it be on the driver's side, passenger side, on the bottom of the engine, near the top? Anything a potential uh, retrofitter would need to know before they decided to move forward with a, with a job? No, I mean, the, the biggest thing it comes down to, and it's, it's one of those things when you're building your hot rod, and it's everything you do on a hot rod, muscle car, anything else, everything's a compromise. You know, if, if you want the compressor hidden, you can put it down low on the engine as long as you have space between the engine and frame for the bracket to run it. You know, you can put it high on the engine, you know, if you have hood clearance. And, you know, we've got a lot of different bracket accessory systems available, everything from a single V-belt steel bracket right up to a complete front runner engine drive system that's a you know, complete drive system, everything from the block forward, you know, your water pump and all your accessories, compressor, 170 amp alternator, power steering pump, all in one compact serpentine belt spring tensioned accessory drive. So we've got that type available. I generally, as a rule, like to put the compressor on the passenger side of the engine just from the fact that it keeps you from running the refrigerant lines across the top of the engine. It makes for a little cleaner installation. So if you're putting it low or if you're putting it mid-range mid or up high, generally on the passenger side, you're going to keep those hoses to the right side of the vehicle, which is where they're going to run to go in, in the uh, passenger compartment. All right. And that's just the compressor, though. What should folks consider um, when thinking about mounting the other air conditioning system components, things like the EVAP core condenser and other stuff like that? Again, when we do our seminars and everything, I like to start the seminar with just giving people a basic idea of how air conditioning works, because a lot of people and just it's normal to think you've got a box inside your car that makes cold air and that's how your AC system works. And it's really a little more complex than that. It, you basically have a system designed to absorb the heat from, from a confined area and then carry that heat outside of that area and dissipate it to the environment. You're circulating a refrigerant through the system and that refrigerant changes state twice. It evaporates inside the vehicle, inside that evaporator, and as it evaporates, it absorbs heat from the air within that confined area and then you carry it out to the compressor push it through the condenser where you condense it back into a liquid. As you push cool air across it, that condenses it to a liquid and that takes the heat out of that refrigerant. So you're basically taking heat from inside the vehicle and then dissipating it to the outside. And it's important to keep that in mind because the first thing we always talk about, and we'll get to the sizing, but the first thing I always talk about is no air conditioning or heating system is going to work in your vehicle until you properly seal and insulate the vehicle. You know, if you're running around with your windows down, that AC is not going to work real well. And that's an exaggerated case. But if you don't have good insulation and you don't have good weather stripping and you don't have good sealing, you're never going to be able to cool that. It'd be kind of like running your air conditioner in your house with the doors and windows open. The house is never going to get cool. And it's the same way with your vehicle. You've got to be able to separate the outside environment from your inside environment for that AC system to work properly. You've got to seal it up well. So, the fact that you have heat absorbed inside the car and dissipated outside, you always want to use the largest evaporator you can inside because that's absorbing heat. The larger the coil you have, the more heat absorption capacity it has. 
Same way when you get to your condenser in front of the radiator, the larger that condenser is, the more heat it can dissipate. So the larger that you want to go with the largest set of components you can in the heat, in the condenser and the evaporator because of, again, the physics of what we're talking about, how the system works. Now, one of the questions that immediately sprung to mind when you agreed to do this interview a couple of weeks ago is probably what a lot of the folks listening out there are thinking right now. You know, I'm handy with a wrench, can do a brake job, can pull cylinder heads. Am I smart enough? Am I competent enough to handle a retrofit for an air conditioning system? How intense is this process? Oh, sure. You can install it. I mean, and, and the systems have varying degrees of dif- difficulty. You know, we still sell a large number of the underdash, you know, you, people used to call them the knee knocker AC systems, you know, the underdash, and they're quite simple to install. I mean, you're basically mounting an evaporator under your dash of the vehicle. You're running your hoses out to your compressor and the condenser you mount in front of the radiator. So that can be a pretty simple installation. Some of the bolt-in SureFit kits require a little more work than that because in in most cases, the work comes down to getting the original stuff out, you know, getting the original heater out and off the firewall. You may have to drop the fender well and things like that to be able to get these the original components out. But our systems are designed to be bolt-ins. And I still say the majority of the systems that are sold are installed by the owners themselves. I mean, a lot of them. I don't know if it's the majority anymore. You know, some of the things have changed within our, our hobby. But still, you know, we've, we've got five tech guys on the phone every day to just answer questions for people. And the majority of the people they talk to are people doing their own installations that have, you know, some questions or things like that. Okay, so looking past the difficulty, um, how much modification to the vehicle needs to happen? You know, things like an accessory drive, you can go back to stock probably pretty easily, I imagine. But for mounting the other components, for getting um, the coolant lines run through the, the engine bay and past the firewall... Do your kits typically require a whole lot of cutting, drilling, or fabricating? We try to keep the, the modifications to a minimum when we're designing a bolt-in system. Uh, we use as many of the factory mounting locations on the firewall. We give you a, a powder-coated uh, sheet metal plate to cover up the hole in the firewall. And it's, it's, it's a bolt-on, and you're obviously going to seal it when you put it on, but it's a bolt-on. And... It's one of these cases where the louvers that we have, again, like we thought we talked about earlier, some of them you have to drill holes in the dash to, to install them. But in 90% of the, the applications, if that's something you want to stay away from, we have other options available to where you can just put some, some louvers under your dash and minimize the amount of cutting that you have to do. There's always going to be some, in, in most cases, there's going to be some minor modifications that have to be made. But we try to be mindful of that in you know, it, the the times that comes into play is if a guy has a real rare vehicle or something like that, sometimes Corvettes more than anything else. And our Corvette kits, we try to really keep that in mind to keep it a true bolt-in system so that if you do ever want to return it to the factory configuration, it's something that's, that you can do. Oh, that probably puts a lot of people's minds at ease. But let's take a 60-second sidebar, and I promise it'll it'll last 60 seconds. Um, to talk about Summit Racing, because we are indeed a podcast powered by Summit Racing. And it seems like a good time to remind folks out there that any vintage air component you want, you can find right there at summitracing.com. That's including the complete systems and the individual parts. So depending on the scale of the AC retrofit project you're undertaking, um, you can find all that stuff at summitracing.com. And better yet, Summit Racing makes it really easy to find the stuff, too, because you can search by year, make, model. Like right there, 1970, Chevy, 
Chevelle, or whatever you're driving. So if any of this stuff piques your curiosity, shift your browser on over to uh, summitracing.com. You can just type in Vintage Air into the search bar, and you can see all the Vintage Air stuff that Summit Racing carries. So again, if you're thinking about retrofitting your vehicle with an air conditioning system, Vintage Air, available at summitracing.com. Uh, now, Rick, getting back to the, the interview, I got a, a kind of a random question. Um, is it possible to retrofit an air conditioning system on, say, a boat or one of those really fancy side-by-sides? Um, boats and side-by-sides are a little difficult. A little difficult. We've done boats before, but you've got to have a place for that heat exchanger, for that second heat exchanger. The evaporator is the same. It doesn't care what it's in, you know, where it's absorbing the heat. But with a boat, you don't have a radiator in most cases, you know, or you're, you're using water to cool. So there are heat exchangers that are made exactly for that. They're, a, you know, a water heater exchange, heat exchanger where you have seawater coming in that cools the refrigerant. So it's possible to do it that way, but it's just a couple different components. The side-by-sides have the same type of thing. You got to be able to mount a compressor somewhere. You've got to have a condenser large enough to dissipate that heat and package spaces at a a real minimum on a lot of those, you know, small radiators and open air, you know, they're not enclosed. So again, you're trying to remove heat from the great outdoors, which is difficult to do. So some of those things are possible, but they're certainly more challenging in a lot of cases. And now another question that I had that came to mind as we were talking was, um, do you ship your AC systems, um, and I'm doing air quotes here, uh, fully charged? Like, do they already have the the refrigerant in them? Or what's the process for getting them, again, air quotes, uh, charged up so that they're ready to blow some cold air? No, it's got to be serviced. Um, We actually, the evaporators and the condensers come charged with nitrogen nitrogen gas just, and that ensures a good dry. You don't have any moisture in there. And, you know, assures you, you have no leaks. When you pull the caps off, you'll hear the nitrogen escape. But once you install it, obviously you'll hook up your refrigerant lines and hoses, get all that run. And then you're going to have to have it serviced either by a professional or someone that has the, the proper charging system to make that happen. I mean, the AC gauges with a quality scale because the amount of refrigerant that you put in your system is critical to its operation. And prior to putting the refrigerant in, you've got to evacuate the system, which we call evacuating system. And what that does, that evacuation process does two things. It removes the outside air from those hoses that were in there when you put them together. And it also boils any moisture out of the system. You put that system under vacuum, which lowers the boiling point of water So you actually boil any moisture out of the system because you want that system to be dry. You don't want any moisture in those hoses or in the evaporator, in the condenser. So by evacuating the system, you're boiling out moisture and you're removing the air. And then you put the refrigerant in the system and it's got to, it's, you got to put the right amount in. That's critical to system operation. Most of our systems require 1.8 pounds of R134A and 1.8 is what you need. You you know, when you start putting 1.9 or two, you're going to see a degradation of performance because you're going to have higher operating pressures and less efficient operations. So the charging process, that's the most common issue that our tech guys deal with on a day-to-day basis is charging because now you can go to an auto zone and buy you your little AC charge kit or something like that, you know, and try to put it in the vehicle. And it's just, it's, it's just not the right way to do it. It's not the right way to do it. You've got to have it serviced by a professional or someone that knows what they're doing. Okay, so let's fast forward a tad with a bit more of a general AC question. Um, I've got my my air conditioning system, whether it's vintage air or, you know, the factory system. 
What are some things I can look out for in terms of like potential warning signs or what are some general maintenance tips I can do or perform to ensure my uh, vehicle's air conditioning system enjoys like a long service life? A lot of it just has to do with paying attention. You know, when you're cleaning the engine compartment on your car, you want to check the connections. All the all the AC fittings are O-ring fittings to retain the refrigerant. And if you see some oil or something like that around these, that would indicate a leak and you're going to see a degradation in system performance. So you want to check for leaks in the system, make sure everything's staying clean. You want to check that your uh, compressor drive belt is tight and not slipping or anything like that. You know, if it's a serpentine belt, you're going to have a lot less issues like that, especially if it's a spring tension serpentine belt. But you want to make sure that your belts are staying, that they're not old and cracked or things like that. You want to make sure that your condenser isn't all stopped up with bugs or with dirt because you're not going to get heat transfer if your condenser is dirty. Same thing inside the car. You want to make sure that that the air intake for the blower stays clean, that you're not pulling a lot of debris up in there because that's going to limit your system performance. So most of it is just simple inspection that doesn't take a lot of any real special talent or skill. It's just using your eyes like so many other things to make sure things stay clean and they operate better. All right, Rick. So we've been talking for close to 30 minutes now on, on vehicle AC systems, and it's been pretty enlightening. Um, is there anything uh, to close out here that uh, folks need to know about air conditioning systems, specifically vehicle air conditioning systems, or anything that you want to tell folks about uh, vintage air? Well, it's one of these things that, you know, as we drive our vehicles, you know, a lot of us grew up and I mean, I my family didn't have an air conditioning car for most of the time when I was growing up and everything. And, you know, we got used to that. But boy, we're all used to AC cars now. And the thing we never think about is it's not only the cool air that makes it so much more pleasant to drive your car when it's air conditioned. It's just how much more pleasant the, the passenger compartment is. Your windows are rolled up. You can actually hear yourself talking. You can hear the radio. You're not having the roar of the 18 wheelers going by and throwing things and dust and dirt. You know, the interior of your car stays a lot cleaner with all that coming in. So the benefits of AC in your car extend beyond just the nice, cool air you're feeling. Although that's, to be honest, that's, you know, that's the biggest part of it for sure. You can get to your car show, get to an event, and you're not just wore out and sweating like crazy. So, I mean, that's obviously the first priority, but there's a lot of other benefits that come along with it. Well, Rick, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and talking about a, a subject that, that, quite frankly, a lot of people don't know about. You know, plenty of gearheads will dive into an engine block or, or cylinder heads or a transmission, but AC systems are often like kind of a weird magical mystery box, right? That's one of those things. We're upgrading the performance. So many things of the cars we drive, you know, from brakes to engine to everything else, you know, and the most important thing when you're driving a car somewhere is to be comfortable. And that's such a big part of being comfortable in the car. That is a pretty good takeaway for this episode. Well, again, Rick, thanks for the opportunity to chat. Stay cool, my friend. We appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.